0: The previous holder of Das Torah in the Haredi world, Rav Steinman, no one would say, for instance, that uh, he would, at least I don't think they would say, that he was a greater Torah scholar than Shmuel Auerbach. But he had other, he was a great Torah scholar, of course, but he had other characteristics. He was a great Sadiq and in other words, and no one would say that Rav Chaim Ozer, I think, was a greater Torah scholar than Rav Echever, but it's not about just how much knowledge you have. There's a- a- other things that come into what makes a Godol a Godol. We don't assume... And even in a Haredi world, they don't assume that the of Yisrael, or the Posei has to know the most. There has to be tzidkus. There has to be a, a way of relating to people. So it's not just an equation of who has the most Torah knowledge.
1: I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Das Torah can be broadly defined as the belief that gedolei Torah, great Torah scholars, have unusual insight in areas beyond the determination of Jewish law and Jewish thought, and that the Orthodox community as a whole, and its individual members, would do well, or maybe even be required, to consult with these gedolei Torah before undertaking any significant action. In my last episode, I offered personal reflections on some of the reasons that the doctrine of Das Torah is, in its current incarnation, quite damaging in my opinion. Today, I'm honored to host Professor Mark Shapiro to discuss Das Torah from an historical perspective, how it's been understood, where it comes from, the degree to which it's taken seriously, and much more. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish House team. Finally, Imagine standing behind a lectern in a packed room, speaking to an audience of 200 people, everyone paying attention to every single word. Now imagine an audience of 500 people, or an audience of 1,000, or even more. That's what you're doing every time you release an episode of your podcast— If you have a message that needs to be shared and you want to promote your organization, your business, or your cause, the most effective method is by creating a podcast. And JCH Podcast Production can make it happen for you. JCH Podcast Production offers individualized packages that empower you to build your perfect podcast in the way that best promotes you and your message while playing to your strengths. We'll support you from the initial idea, through the setup process, through promotion and release, through your first milestones and beyond. And as data comes in, we'll help you tweak it to make it even better. So if you'd like to produce a podcast that's both entertaining and effective and noted for its high-quality content and exceptional sound, contact us today. Go to jchpodcasts.com to sign up for your free consultation or write to scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Mark Shapiro holds the Weinberg Chair in Judaic Studies at the University of Scranton, a graduate of Brandeis and Harvard. He is the author of numerous books, articles, and reviews, and is a popular scholar-in-residence at synagogues around the world. He has written Between the Yeshiva World and Modern Orthodoxy and The Limits of Orthodox Theology, both of which were National Jewish Book Award finalists. Other books of his include Saul Lieberman and the Orthodox, Studies in Maimonides and His Interpreters, and Changing the Immutable, How Orthodox Judaism Rewrites Its History. In 2019, he published *Igrot Malchei Rabbanan, which contains more than 30 years of correspondence with some of the world's most outstanding Torah scholars. He regularly publishes widely read scholarly articles on this foreign blog, and is currently writing a book on the thought of Rav Kook. Professor Mark Shapiro, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast.
0: Pleasure to be here.
1: I recently discussed Dat Torah and Emunat Chachamim as they appear today. But those were my own reflections. So today I'd like to ask you about them from an historical perspective. I'd like to begin with definitions. So Professor Shapiro, can you define that Torah and say what it really first became in its modern incarnation, a major force in Jewish life?
0: Okay, well that's a problematic in and of itself because what is the definition? Uh, I don't think you'll get uh, the same definition if you ask different people. However, I would define it in its most simplest form that the, the great rabbis, the Gedolim, by virtue of their uh, Torah knowledge, and their uh, enclosing themselves completely within the Torah, the Torah world, the Torah, the, the Sfarim, everything that it means to be a great Torah scholar, that they are given special insight in deciding not just halachic matters, uh, not just what we would call hashkafic matters, but really any matters and that uh, this uh, insight is binding upon faithful Jews because these Gedolim have much better insight uh, than we do because they've you know, been exposed to the Torah. They're living the Torah, married to the Torah in a way that uh, regular people are not.
1: How would you explain then to those people who are part of this world, we have seen instances, we can point them out, they're not hidden, where... These gedolim, in giving their Das Torah, were wrong. The most obvious example is one that I referenced in my last podcast with the Holocaust, where numerous Rebbes, who were considered to be oracles of sorts, Das Torah in the way you're defining it now, told people that nothing would happen, they could stay in Europe, and those people were all slaughtered. You would think that after that sort of event, this ideology that they have some sort of special insight would be discredited.
0: Well, it certainly was discredited among many people. Just like uh, today with the sexual abuse uh, situation, many people have uh, been discredited, it's been discredited in many people's eyes. But for true believers, uh, it's very difficult to discredit something. Uh, I mean, everyone said that uh, before the Lubavitchi passed away, that uh, once he passed away, that would be the it for uh, the rampant messianism. And we see that for some it was, and for others it was not. Uh, True believers, are not easily moved from their belief. So while the question is better framed, perhaps, as how do the believers in the doctrine of Das Torah justify it after seeing these sort of failures? And they have explanations and they have answers for it. Uh, uh, But there's no question that many people have been disillusioned by Das Torah. And it isn't just the example you gave. Uh, The Das Torah, if we can use that term, it's a little anachronistic, but the Das Torah was opposed to Zionism. By definition, any religious Zionist, then and today, was and is in opposition to Das Torah. To be a supporter of Zionism in the late 19th, early 20th century meant that you were going against Das Torah. And plenty of religious Jews did that, recognizing that they were not going along with what the great rabbis had to say, because they felt that the great rabbis don't have a monopoly on truth.
1: When you describe Das Torah as being a type of Ruch HaKodesh, I'm putting those words in your mouth, but I assume that's what you're referring to, some sort of Holy Spirit which allows the rabbis who are married to the Torah to have this special kind of insight... I quoted in my last podcast, Rav Aaron Feldman of Near Yisrael, who said that Das Torah is not Ruach HaKodesh. I believe he says that no one thinks that. Das Torah is simply that because they are so wise and their understanding of Torah so deep, they have a better understanding, but it's pure intellectual understanding. It's not God-given. He still says you have to listen to them because otherwise you're a fool. Is that a common definition in your mind? No,
0: no. That is in direct opposition to the standard Haredi perception as advocated and written by everyone. Uh, starting with the Chazonish and on, even before the Chazonish, everyone agrees. I, I wonder whether Rabbi Feldman is being frank in what he's saying, because it is basic that the Godobi B'Yisrael, the one who's immersed himself in Torah, also has a siyata deshmaya, a divine assistance. I, wouldn't, I don't know if we're going to call it Ruach HaKodesh, but a divine assistance that enables this individual to uh, come to conclusions that are, uh, I guess, closer to the truth, than others. So that doesn't mean that uh, such a person cannot make a mistake. However, they are given a certain a divine assistance that uh, others are not. And therefore, uh, if you want to hedge your bets, the best thing is you follow the and what they have to say. But to, to, to deny that they have siyata de Shemaya is really to uh, pull the rug, rug under the whole concept of das Torah, which from its beginning is based on the fact that the gedolim are given this siyat and by virtue of the fact that they're not uh, influenced by the outside world and they're ku'o Torah.
1: That actually goes in complete opposition to what Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, Zatzal said about das Torah, that the problem is in his mind, he said this in, his, in a talk, that while there's Torah, there's no das. And accordingly people who don't have any knowledge of the outside world are less able to actually give proper answers. He said in that talk that if everyone were like Rav Salman-Orbach, who has common sense, knows what he knows, knows what he doesn't know, and also can appreciate the needs of the questioner, is willing to say, I'm not sure about something, if everyone were like that, he would have no problem with Das Torah. The problem is they lack the very thing that you say they see as a benefit.
0: Okay, well, I, I think uh, the advocates of Das Torah, and this is not how it it often plays out. When they speak about self-enclosed just kuo Torah. they don't mean that the person is ignorant of, let's say, of, he doesn't know who the president of America is and doesn't understand certain basic concepts in science and the history. What it means, though, however, is that these people are not they're not going to the, the, the baseball game. And they're not being concerned with uh, things outside the uh, culture and just uh, the Gashmias that most people are. Now, it is true that among certain great figures in the Haredi world, uh, they do have absolutely no knowledge of the outside world. And in such cases, you wonder, who is the Das Torah? Is the Das Torah from the Gadol or is it from what they call the Askan? The person who has, because if you come, if you're dealing with a great rabbi, who literally has no knowledge outside of Torah, and you have to come in and explain to this uh, great rabbi all about the various political situations going on now. And then he makes a decision: Do you support this party or that party? Really, it's your explanation that leads to the das Torah. So it's the advisor who's creating the das Torah, and that is always the criticism in the Haredi world when they don't want. I mean, internal the, criticism. Internal criticism when they don't want to accept a certain Gedol's das Torah, they say it's not really his das Torah. He's been misled by his advisors. But of course that raises the question that uh, for Das Torah to function properly, if you need uh, good advice, then in what sense is it Das Torah? Because the advisor can twist it any way the advisor wants. Uh, That's been an issue and an area of conflict uh, in the state of Israel since the beginning when uh, Aguris Yisrael decided to join the government. And um, even in the first government, there was a minister uh, and the opposition to the Buddhist Yisrael said that, that this cannot be Das Torah because the Buddhist Yisrael was always opposed to Zionism and that Itchamir Levin and the other leaders of the Buddhist Israel were really in control of the Murtzitz Kadulia Torah. Well, again, if you have a situation where the Askanim are in control of the Murtzitz Kadulia Torah, then where is Das Torah? And the critics said, you're right, there is no more Das Torah. There is a whole group within the Haredi world that denied Das Torah. Uh, at least denied that the Muwetsa Torah, because they were considered... They probably a, had their
1: own Das Torah, though. Das
0: Torah. Yes, but Das Torah is understood to refer to the Muwetsa Torah of a Buddhist Yisrael. When you speak, for example, of Hasidah Shirebi, you don't speak in terms of Das Torah, because it's a completely different concept. Hasidah Shirebi doesn't have to have Torah knowledge. It's not part of the job description. Now, his prophecy, or... Ruach Kodish is a better term to use it, comes from a certain divine overflow, I guess you could say, that's due to him being part of a lineage. But it's not as a result of his great Torah knowledge. In the Lithuanian world, Das Torah is a direct result of great Torah knowledge. That doesn't mean you have to be the greatest Torah scholar. For instance, the previous holder of Das Torah in the Haredi world, Rav Steinman, no one would say, for instance, that uh, he w- at least I don't think they would say, that he was a greater Torah scholar than Shmuel Auerbach. But he had other, he was a great Torah scholar, of course, but he had other characteristics. He was a great Sadiq. and in other words, and no one would say that Chaim Moser, I think, was a greater Torah scholar than a rabbi shavu, but it's not about just how much knowledge you have. There's other things that come into what makes a godol a Godel. We don't assume, even in a Haredi world, they don't assume that the godol of Yisrael, or the posek has to know the most. There has to be tzidkus, there has to be a, a way of relating to people. So it's not just an equation of who has the most Torah knowledge.
1: That's really interesting. And it actually gives lie to something that I was going to ask you about. I'll ask about it now. This goes back to the question of where historically Das became a thing in the Lithuanian world. I had been assuming, based on nothing, that the effective merger of the Hasidic and Misnagdish worlds that happened with institutions like Agudas Israel. Once upon a time, they had been tremendous opponents of each other, and they eventually became allies. I figured it was an influence that moved from the Hasidic world into the Misnagdish world. Are you saying that's not true? And if it's not true, where did Das Torah come from in the non-Hasidic world?
0: Okay, a couple of things. First of all, Gurdas was not an uh, not opposition to the Hasidic world. Hasidim were involved in the Guru Yisrael as the founding.
1: That's what I mean. Meaning that was, the, that was at the time when they started to merge together into a common Orthodox ideology working together against reform and conservative. That's what I mean.
0: Okay. Well, first, before I answer this, there's been a big change in Das Torah. So let's deal with this, and that might relate more to the Hasidic angle here. Originally, Das Torah referred to the great rabbis, and there was even a Moetzis Gadolia Torah. Today, we it's a completely, the last generation, a completely different new conception of Das Torah, what I refer to as the papal conception. We now have a situation that for Das Torah, you have one of Israel who functions as a, um, the ultimate authority and there's an expectation when one gadol passes away that another one will rise to the fore and take his place and you can see this you go let's say from Rav Shach to Rav Yashev, then to Rav Steinman of course unless you're on the the Auerbach side and then after Rav Steinman you have Rav Chaim Kanievsky or, or, there's been this assumption that there needs to be one repository of Das Torah for each community And that was not the way it was. Uh, There never was this conception when Das Torah began, when you begin to speak about it. So when did Das Torah begin? Well, this, of course, you'll find disputes and you'll find disputes about uh, why it began. Um, There's been important articles on this topic. Uh, Gershon Bacon, uh, he even wants to see a connection um, to Catholic ideas of infallibility, if I recall correctly, but uh, I don't believe that's the case. Uh, First of all, Das Torah is not really infallibility in the way, uh, Catholics speak about it, but um, I know that the Haredim like to say that there's always been this notion of Das Torah, just hasn't been formulated by the terms Das Torah. The problem is we don't really see descriptions of it either. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rishnir Zalman, even speaks against this conception that you go to the, the Rebbe for non-Torah matters. He, he says this is not for him. To Meaning discuss. the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rishnir, yes, Rishnir first, Zalman of the, the The first Lubavitcher Rebbe. The question is though, uh, did the rabbis want this power, but the people just didn't give it to them? I have a view, and I I don't think this is the mainstream view, but I believe, and I can give some reasons for this if you're interested, that this really comes from the people, the masses. It's very rare for a leader not to take what's given. The people never gave the rabbis this authority. But there begins to be an expectation among the people in the 20th century that the rabbis should be given this as well. And the people then declare it, it, it's, the, it's the masses and the good that is the late people, who established it has to be Moetz's Kedolia Torah. And it becomes an expectation of the people that these things are, if the people never went to the great rabbis for these questions, if they never went to the rabbis and asked the rabbis to decide political questions, the rabbis wouldn't. So I actually think that um, it's, I think you can term it a, a lack of confidence among the Jewish masses that they decided perhaps looking over at the Hasidic world and uh, seeing how in the Hasidic world it's all very easy because everything is decided for you. But this was never done in the Lithuanian world. You even take, for example, Talmud Modavaker of Chaim Soloveitchik, the major he becomes a tsioni, even though his Rebbe, and he's the Talmud Muthak, uh, uh, uh the, the, the Roshan Palachek, he becomes a Zionist. So if you'd ask him, how could he be a Tzayini, when his Rebbe uh, thought that the Zionists were the absolute worst, his answer would be, I know my Rebbe said this, but we're also given a brain and uh, I'm allowed to come to my own conclusions. That was always the Litvisha approach. That's why you had many... Litvisher Rabbanim, who broke with uh, their teachers and became Zionists. It was never thought in the Lithuanian Torah world that uh, your freedom of thought was pushed to the side, that uh, you abandoned it uh, as part of the Torah world. What's changed is, in a more Hasidic, uh, I guess, orientation, that the Litvisher world no longer exists. This intellectual independence, which was a trademark of the Lithuanian yeshivas, uh, uh, no longer exists, at least not publicly. We know that it still exists to a large extent, because if you look at the voting trends in Israel, you look at cities like B'nai Brak. I was in B'nai Brak today, and you and you look in uh, Yeshuvim, which are completely Haredi Yeshuvim, and you would expect that they vote completely for the Haredi parties, and yet that's not what you see. Inside the ballot booth, uh, all sorts of parties get votes in opposition to the Das Torah. So it's, it's, it's more complicated.
1: That's very interesting. I want to suggest something that you didn't mention right now. I'm curious what you think about this. Another element of Das Torah, aside from telling us things that have nothing to do ostensibly with Torah knowledge per se, whether it's political decisions or other decisions, this is something I've also noticed, is this idea that the Gadol is somehow the rabbi of everybody. Once upon a time, you had your community rabbi, your shul rabbi, the person who was the person that you chose as your rabbi or your scholar. That person would tell you what to do if you had a Shila. Now there's an idea. It doesn't matter what your personal rabbi said because the gedolim say you have to do the following. I think that's another element of Das Torah that exists as well.
0: Well, uh, with the uh, rise of mass communication, this became possible. Uh, if you went back, for example, uh, 100 years ago, you'd come home, you're at a yeshiva, the Rosh yeshiva, by the way, never decided halacha. That's also another important point. If you look today, who are the uh, recipients of da- repositories of das Torah? Without exception, it's Rosh yeshiva. Mm-hmm. People who are sort of removed from the hustle and bustle. And yet, uh, pre-war, all the great post scheme were uh, community rabb- rabbis. And this really begins to change in the nineteen 19- after World War II in America. We know it's the famous nineteen fifty-six declaration uh, by the rashi yeshiva against synagogue council of america when it's all rashi yeshiva and today there's an expectation that the, the communal rav is not the the highest authority so that has certainly removed authority from the local rabbis and you're absolutely right that it used to be you went to your local rabbis but uh, why go to the local rabbis when you know the uh the Godot has uh, made a decision now the problem is that the Godot also often doesn't know the local situation and uh, we have a, a very famous uh, tshuva about this of uh, Rechai Moser You had this dispute in Germany about uh, communal belonging to one community, which the Wurzburger of Zell said was okay. And you're ever of Shamshon Rafa Hirsch, who said it was absolutely forbidden. And that was a controversy, and that remained a controversy in Germany until World War II. And uh, there was a lot of disputes. Uh, and fights about this in the mid 19th century. And then it sort of uh, calmed down until the beginning of the 20th century, when for a n- couple of reasons it heated up again. And some uh, Jews in Germany turned to Rav Moser to ask him to pass in the Shiloh. And Rav Moser, who was the biggest repository of Das Torah, he was the God of Hadar, not just uh, in terms of Psaac, but he was the leading authority in terms of uh, Hashkafa in the Lithuanian Torah world. He refused to answer the question. He said when the dispute was going on between the Wurzberger Rav and Hirsch, there's a reason why they didn't ask for Vitzel to give a ruling, which is he was the, the address for German rabbis or the Nitziv or anyone else. And that's because this was a dispute that in order to decide it, you needed to be on the spot. You needed to be living in Germany and have an understanding of what was going on. Sir Chaim Ozer shows his greatness we say you get also ha-prisha, in saying that he wouldn't answer it because not being in Germany, not knowing the particulars, this is not a question that an outsider can answer. And we've had other examples of that as well. Um, I think the gedowim who are given the authority of Das Torah all agree with Rebchai Moser that if they're not on the spot, it's not for them to decide. But often the askanim... Um, Phrase the questions in such a way that it doesn't come off that way. Obviously, though, if you speak to any rav, he'll tell you that a, that a ruling made by one of the gadolim speaking to his yeshiva community in Israel is not necessarily applicable. And when I say I'm talking, rabbis will tell you that the, the best example of this is that when Rabbi Steinman came to America, this, this is what it was reported. He was speaking, I think, it was the Torah Musora. And uh, someone asked him a question about Rebbe's playing basketball with the students, and he said, it's not appropriate. Uh, there needs to be a distance, and uh, playing with them uh, lessens that distance, and they won't have cover for you. I believe it was sort of uh, Kamenetsky later in speaking, said basically said that you can ignore, or Simon said, that he doesn't understand that for a Rebbe to have a connection to boys in America, something you know, playing basketball with them is the best way to have it. So uh, he, I don't know exactly how he phrased it, but Rabbi Kamenetsky would have phrased it in a way with a lot of cavo that basically this is not something Rabbi Steinman is giving an eretz answer when in America it's very different. And Rabbi Steinman would be the first one, if it was explained to him, to acknowledge that, that it's sort of unfair, I think, to ask the question of uh, a good old coming from eretz to America who doesn't know the situation.
1: I want to suggest something else and I'm curious what you as a historian think of this, because I've thought for a while, again, I'm obviously not an historian, so maybe I'm completely off base here. You mentioned before that the reason that the Gdolim have the power as opposed to your local communal rav is largely because of mass communications. And obviously that's clearly a factor. I've also thought that, the fact that it coincides with the end of World War II, the beginning of the state of Israel, might be connected to the fact that once upon a time, there was a community. If a Jew lived in Radin, his grandfather also probably lived in Radin. They'd been living there for many times. There were real communities with real local minhug, and it actually meant something. Minhag nowadays is dead because all of those original communities, both in the Ashkenazic and the Sephardic world, are for the most part gone. They've been reconstituted, if at all, in Israel, in the United States, the Russian community, is obviously for different reasons completely eliminated. What it once was is no longer there. Because of that, the idea of a local rav or the local community with its own minhagim no longer exists. So accordingly, the question is: Who are the new rabbis if there's no such thing as a community rabbi per se? That, along with mass communications, leads to the answer that the rabbi is the gadal hador.
0: Yeah, the only thing I would say to that is we're not really dealing with minhugging here, we're dealing with, uh, I guess you could say, hanhaga. we're dealing with leadership, and uh, so it's not a quite, it's true, there are no, we don't have local minhugging anymore. In Europe, for instance, if you're in Kovno, and the practice for generations in Kovno was to say this prayer or not do it this way, the fact that the ador would say that this is a mistake didn't change matters, because this is the minhugga of our community, So in that sense, we have, and Chaim Solveitch, of course, has written about this, we have a a growing uniformity of what's considered appropriate practices. But here we're dealing with something different. We're dealing with uh, the notion that one or two great rabbis can be authoritative for uh, Jews all over the world. And uh, that is a combination of the mass communication. You can easily, well, why do you need to ask your local rabbi when this great rabbi is a greater Torah scholar? You can ask this great rabbi. And also... um, the, the, there's an expectation, perhaps because of the Hasidic world, that uh, we could use one great figure. Also, um, modern uh, photography constantly—if you there's a connection between how the public regards certain rabbis and how often they're photographed. And there's often a public a department of public relations. Their picture is always up. And uh, if you don't have a PR, for example, Rabbi Shlomo Fisher recently passed away, by any objective standard, he is the equivalent of um, the, the, the rabbis you find on, let's say, the Moises Godoye Torah. But he never had the influence. He didn't have a division of public affairs uh, pushing him, even though, as I said, by any measure, is he's greater in Torah learning and understanding uh, than many, many of the rabbis who today are given this authority.
1: It's very interesting, because I hear all the time, and it frankly bothers me, I hear many people saying things like this, when they ask their local rabbi a question, they'll say, he told me yes or no, because the gedolim said it. This idea that no rabbi, even a a serious scholar who's the rabbi of a shul, the rabbi of a community, the reason that he gave me this particular answer is not because he studied the issue or he looked it up himself. It's because the gedolim told him that's what they have to do. And I see this over and over. It actually, I think it's a real problem. It takes away power. I don't care about power, but it takes away authority from people who actually know the situation that individuals are involved
0: in. Yeah, well, again, that's a question to each individual rabbi. But uh, there's a flip side to this, is that you also have uh, many rabbis. They figure they went to smi- school, they learned, and they got a cloth a and they got smicha, and now they can start deciding questions, uh, even weighty, weighty questions. Uh, and that's also not traditional, because uh, just because you're a young rabbi doesn't give you the right to start poskening on that uh, of great uh, importance. However, traditionally, obviously, a rav who's a talmud chacham, was not, did not feel bound, uh, just because it was some great figure thought differently. Otherwise uh, you don't need to have, otherwise you just call Ravoyashev. he could give you the answer for everything. You can go to you don't need any other post game. You can have a whole office there of uh, the god will be and all the questions go there. But that's not how PSOC has ever worked. And it can't work that way because PSOC deals with individual circumstances and not just PsOC uh, leadership. There was a politician in the Lakewood area. I don't know if it was state or just a local politician and he was intermarried. And yet uh, the Lakewood Yeshiva community supported him because uh, he, he brought in the box, he did good things. Well, someone was running against him, I think a religious person and, uh, he went, uh, he got his people to go out to Rakhim Konevsky, and they said, can you support an intermarried person? And of course, Rakhim Konevsky said, absolutely not. Uh, he's like a Mashumad. And then he came back, and you are hanging up signs all over Lakewood that you can't vote for a Mish- Mish- uh, an intermarried person because Rakhim Kanevsky said. And the Lakewood leadership said that basically, Rakhim doesn't know the situation. And uh, and of course, if they would have gone to him, they would have explained it to him. But it's, uh, th- these, these are the problems that uh, arise in those situations. You, you need local leadership. But uh, even local leadership needs to recognize that uh, there are certain areas that uh, they're not expert in. That's another problem. So I think the problem goes both ways.
1: I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, comparing Das Torah, or not comparing in your case, to papal infallibility, which of course was declared in 1870. It was an assumed idea, but it was actually declared official doctrine at the first Vatican Council. And the idea of infallibility, which you say doesn't really apply over here, it's actually only in the Catholic Church, but invoked once or twice, depending on how you count it. It's not really something which has so much practical implications for them. Nonetheless, Das Torah is often understood as, whether you call it the Ruach HaKodesh, or whether you call it Siyat HaDishmai, some sort of godly assistance enabling them to make good decisions. How do those who propose the idea of that Torah, those who, its proponents, how do they explain Things like Parhalim halim which is a korban that's given when the Sanhedrin makes a mistake, and all of Amisro makes a mistake. If the Sanhedrin can make a mistake, if the figures in the Torah can make a mistake, how can we say that rabbis nowadays, in all likelihood, can't really make such a mistake?
0: Well, I think they would say it's not a question of that people can't make a mistake. In theory, everyone can make a mistake. The problem is, uh, how can you as a mere mortal be able to identify this mistake? That, that's the issue. So functionally, you might say it, it does equate to infallibility, but uh, theoretically not. And if you point to then, for instance, things like the Holocaust, uh, the answer is, and uh, the Chazamish himself said it, that sometimes uh, God hides the truth from his leaders. You, you have to follow the leaders who are going to follow the best information available. The Rav Chesa Levenstein said, the, the mir, he was opposed to the Mir yeshiva leaving Vilna. Because Rachael Moser was opposed to it. But the students, there was a rebellion of the students. Rechasa Levenstein was the Meshkiach, at the Mir Yeshiva. But the students in the Mir Yeshiva actually rebelled against Das Torah and they insisted to leave. It's the only yeshiva that as a whole uh, left Vilna, and they left Lithuania, and the others unfortunately remained and uh, they were killed. So and this was a rejection of Das Torah. Rukhasa Levenstein said after the war that just because you do something that's crooked, like we did by going to uh, Shanghai, because the problem was you're going to request permission from the Soviets to cross the Soviet Union. They can put you in Siberia. That's what everyone assumed would happen. now just because you do something crooked doesn't mean it was right. In retrospect, it appears that it was right. But at the time, this wasn't the thing you should have done. And therefore your job is to follow what the Godolim say, just like you follow the best doctors. Hmm. Doctor can be wrong, but you're not going to be able to tell the doctor that the doctor is wrong only in retrospect can you see the doctor made a mistake, but uh, that's the way hashkacha practice wanted it to come out. So that's really what das Torah is. Not that they can't make a mistake, but uh, that we can never identify the mistakes. And even after the fact, it's not a mistake. And a mistake is the same means that you had information and uh, you didn't pay attention to this information, and because of your decision, bad thing happens. No. Any times that the decision turns about an incorrect decision, it's all because of reasons beyond their control. Obviously, this is something that would have to be rejected by people who, uh, let's say, are religious Zionists uh, or any or, uh, were arguing to leave Europe because they saw what was happening. But that is how the Haredim understand it, not that it's infallibility.
1: You mentioned just now the Datilumi world. I've often wondered if the Datilumi world in some ways, and obviously it's a very big, broad community, but if sectors of the national religious world are moving towards this conception of Das Torah, parts of like Yeshivat Haramur or the Rav Tau faction, so to speak, is Das Torah becoming a thing within the national religious community?
0: Well, there's always been a struggle already in the days of Rav Kook. Well, when Rav Kook came out with his famous psaacah, uh, Forbidding Women uh, to Vote, Rabbi Maimon, Maimon said, that when we have, have halacha questions, we go to the rabbis, but in political things, we don't go to them. So uh, Rav cook was saying this isn't uh, political, it's, it's not a pure halacha, but there's a hashkafic element to it. Uh, so this has uh, been an issue from the beginning. In the days of Rashoma Gorin, when he was chief rabbi, he wanted to create a Mewitz Torah of religious Zionist rabbis, and Remordech who also wanted to. And the NRP, as it was called, the National Religious Party refused it because they said we are not a Buddhist Israel and we do not have a Moises Gadolia Torah. Rav said the same thing. So what this shows you, however, is there's been rabbis who've been- He said the same it. thing
1: to not have it, you're saying.
0: Rav Solveitchuk also said that we're not a Buddhist Israel, we don't have a Moises Gadolia Torah. But we see that there are rabbis in the religious Zionist world who were pushing this. Now, it's, I think it's fair to say that today, in segments of religious science, where you mentioned Haramor of Tao, they very clearly have a conception of uh, Das Torah, not to the same extent as the Haredi world, at least in much of the religious, probably does have exactly the same conception, but the idea that the great rabbi should weigh in, and you see this in a way in Israel, you don't see in America. If you look at the various um, religious Zionist publications, they think it's of great importance to always get the opinions of the great rabbis and religious Zionist world of issues in a way you don't really have yet in America. That could change as well. For example, um, at the beginning of, when we, the vaccines first came out, there was a big push in, in American modern orthodoxy. You had Rav Schachter, Rav Willard, big rabbis uh, putting making these uh, short talks, uh, you know, two-minute little spiels, which are then put on YouTube uh, about the importance of getting a vaccine. And I remember thinking at the time, what is this? Who's this directed to? In the modern orthodox world, if you want to know if you should get a vaccine, you ask the doctor. Are there any people in the modern orthodox world whose decision of whether they get a vaccine will depend on uh, the great rabbis in the modern orthodox world telling them to? Apparently, yes. Apparently, there are people in the modern orthodox world that if you hear of Shechter or another important rabbi urge it, that will have an influence on them. But not not most, most modern Orthodox would see it as uh, a non sequitur. What does one thing have to do with the other? But I think that's an example of how, even in the modern Orthodox world, or maybe you call it the centrist, centrist right, that uh, the rabbi's uh, authority is broader than most people assume.
1: I was reading Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler's at Sal in his Mikhtem Eliyahu, his essay in volume one about Emunat Chachamim, believing in the sages. And there he describes what it was like to see the great rabbis, I think he mentions Chaim Brisker, Rechaim Moser, and some others like that, talking together. And he describes that even tiny intellects like ours, that's more or less a quote, watching them could see how deep they could go in ways we can't even imagine. A lot of people might have said later on that someone like Rev Desler himself was possessed of this extreme insight that he ascribes to others. I'm sort of interested in the fact that he says, obviously, I don't have that, but they did. Well, anyone nowadays, if you ask any of the Gedolim, if you were to ask them to compare themselves to the great Gedolim pre-war or of Chaim Brisker, or of Chaim Moser, the Chabetz Chaim, I assume they would say, oh, of course, we're we're nothing compared to them. So do the rabbis themselves believe that they have, I mean, the Gedolim, do they look at themselves as having this Das Torah? If you were to ask them, do you have Das Torah? Would they say, yes, I have Das Torah, God helps me to make good decisions? Or is that something which is being imposed on them from without, and they don't actually believe it themselves?
0: Some would without a doubt, say that uh, they do not have any Das Torah, but others would say they do. Uh, The Chassab Sofer writes about when he uh, authors the tshuva, he feels that that he's guided in a certain way, and that even if his arguments are not the best arguments, nevertheless, uh, the conclusion is the correct one. So we do have a sense among certain great figures that they've been, just like Moshe Rabbeinu was given this role, that they've been given this responsibility, and they recognize it's a very heavy responsibility. And if they don't think they're worthy of it, then they back away. Revitliak of Weinberg in many cases didn't want to have this authority because he didn't think he was great enough. But the real leaders, the great rabbis, understand that they have this authority and at the very least, they hope that uh, that, that they're guided by God's insight, by insights that, uh, that God is pushing him in a certain way. After all, if you're a believer, you do believe that, uh, God is pushing you in a certain direction. You don't need to be one of the Godol Yisrael to think that. So I do think that uh, the great Torah scholars who recognize the position they're in do see themselves as uh, being helped along. Of course, it requires as they would say, yeah, they need to work on it, but if they, if they study and if they analyze the issue, they put their faith in God that uh, this is the proper path. Would they say that they could be a, make a mistake? Every Godol would acknowledge that he can make a mistake. Everyone would. But they acknowledge that, but they say they're doing the best they can. And uh, they hope they, and they have confidence perhaps many times that this is what God wants.
1: I don't know if this is true. I once heard that Rav Moshe Feinstein, all, said that when it comes to being Matyar and Naguna, there's no way that God would hide from him the facts such that he would say someone's allowed to get married. And then the person was actually us sir, and the children are moms and I think I heard that he once said that such thing, just God wouldn't let that happen or something like that.
0: There is a story told uh, uh, of that where a woman came back uh, after the war, wasn't, he wasn't involved in this, but another rabbi, and Ramosha said that he knew this rabbi and it's impossible. What, why is it impossible? But I, it's uh, yes. I mean, you, uh, you could have cases like that, uh these are not rationalists, many of the Bedouin. They recognize that there's an interplay here between their intellectual achievements and also a semi-mystical approach that uh, the the Rabonishol, um is involved. And I, I don't think that that's I don't think that's unique to the Haredim. I think that this is something that uh, religious Zionists would also think. Do religious Zionists think that the uh, that the creation of the State of Israel and the choices made by the early Jehovah Zion were simply uh, logical calculations, or do they think that this is part of the Ashkacha practice? You
1: wrote a book a few years ago entitled Changing the Immutable, which you and I discussed on this podcast a couple of years ago. The subtitle is how Orthodox Judaism rewrites its history. And I'd like to relate that question to the larger question of Das Torah based on what we mentioned a few minutes ago. We talked about how sometimes when Das Torah seems to be wrong, then there are reasons why we can explain. Either God hid it from them, as the Chazanish said, or perhaps there are other reasons why Das Torah was mistaken, even though in the end it was the right choice at the time, somehow God decided otherwise. But there's also another element, which we see now, and I find very upsetting, which is revisionist history. We saw it, for example, I mentioned it in my last podcast, where someone like Rav Yoshua Eichenstein originally wrote that—I'm going to quote it right now— even if there's a teacher who has an opinion in the Walder matter, it is an obligation to teach the children only Das Torah, and to cry out about how dangerous it is to embarrass one's friends in public, and to tell them that there are bad people who are mostly shamra about Walder— Etc. Etc. and that these people are murderers. He later on issued a clarification, which says, I'm quoting again, since there are some who mistakenly understood that I have a hint of forgiveness toward the offender, I want to clarify explicitly that I recognize the destructive nature of abuse and it's obvious that victims should go to anyone who can help and there is no concern about Lashon Hara. My problem with this, the clarification is fine, except that it's not a clarification. It's a complete changing of what he said. My question is this, really. How often do we see situations of this where Das Torah is wrong, but later on it's claimed retroactively that it's right? Not that they're saying, well, we made a mistake, but God hid it from us, but rather, no, 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 there was never a mistake. We couldn't be wrong. Rather, I'm just going to clarify what I meant all along. Is there revisionist history in this context?
0: Okay. Well, first I want to say, we've been talking all about Das Torah in theory, and now you're talking about an actual real world case here. Let me first say that very few people actually accept Das Torah in its uh, larger sense. What do I mean by this? They they lip service to it. What would happen? Let's go back to Revel Yoshev, when Rav Yoshev was the Badal Ador, because he was also a great posseg. And he was given the authority of Das Torah even more than Rav Shach, because of his his, his, his ability as a great posseg and being involved not just in Halacha as well. What do you think would happen if one day Revel Yoshev declared, he just got up and said, I, I've investigated the issue. And now I think that beginning this year, we should say, and Yom That's my Das Torah. Do you think in the Haredi world, they would start saying, and Yom Absolutely not. They would throw him out. He no longer would be the Gadol. So the Das Torah Gedoli, they don't have the ability to say whatever they want. They have a limited sphere of operations. If they go too far, either to the right or to the left, if Revel similarly had announced, I now have come to the conclusion that we should adopt the Satmar approach and not have anything to do with the state of Israel, he would then, by definition, no longer be the Das Torah. Well, how could that be? If he is Das Torah, why don't we listen to it? Because Das Torah there's, like I said, there's a limited room to maneuver. So once we, so within that limited room of what's considered acceptable, Das Torah can move a little to the right, a little to the left. So that already we see that the whole concept of Reva came out against the fancy shadels. Have you seen much movement in the Haredi world about that? No, because uh, it's, so that, that's the first thing we recognize. So Das Torah, there's theory, and then there's in practice. Now, the example you gave in uh, Revisionist Ashtore, of course you have Revisionist Ashtore, uh, but it's not the Gadolim. Uh, the, the figure you mentioned is not one of the people who usually you think of in terms of one of the Gadolim.
1: Right. The reason I mentioned it was because he was stated along with Rabbi Edelstein, it was in the same statement. That's why I put them together. I
0: don't know of any cases where Gadolim have uh, tried that. What you do is you have followers, of course, who are trying to um, who are protect to protect the doctrine, and they will uh, engage in revisionism and change things so that they appear in an inauthentic way. The most famous example, of course, is the Belzarebi, and the Belzarebi before they leaves uh, Budapest, the, the speech that his brother gives in his name saying there's nothing to fear, and then he leaves, and the people who remained, uh, they suffered their fate. So these are always very problematic uh, for the followers, but I uh, I, this isn't something that the, the great rabbinic figures uh, have done. We have to distinguish always in these cases between the, the PR departments, and many of these mm-hmm. gedolim are are locked in. They have limited room to maneuver. Even Hasidic Rebbes only have limited room to maneuver. The Satmar Rebbe can't become a Tziyonik, and the Belzer Rebbe can't become a Satmar. With that would just then they no longer be the Rebbe. So within the movement. Which Within the circles that they can move, they're given important authority. However, to a large measure, they're controlled by their handors. And we have many examples on the record of great rabbis saying, you have to ask uh, my gabay, my handwares. And this was the great fear. This was why Ruchayim Salvejik didn't uh, support a newspaper, a Haredi newspaper. This is why he couldn't really support the good Israel, because he says that in the end, the decisions are not going to be made by the Gadolim. They're going to be made by the Askani, the Pakit. And uh, that's uh, that's, as that's really what happened in Israel. The Moetza Skodoli Atara never made the decisions in the early years about a is Israel. It was all made by um, leadership, uh, lay leadership. And that, that's why he opposed it.
1: Let me ask you a question. Maybe as an historian, this isn't a fair thing for you to answer, but... Does revisionism actually matter? Or let them believe whatever they want to believe. The reason I'm asking this is I've read a lot, as might be apparent from some of the questions I've asked, about papal infallibility. And Gary Wills wrote a book entitled Papal Sin, Structures of Deceit, where he talks about papal infallibility at length. And he talks about The statement of Pope John Paul II, we remember, which came out, I think, in 1999, where he talked about the the, uh, intellectual reckoning that has to be done about the Shoah, about the Holocaust, on the part of Catholics. And in that context, he talks about how it fails to do so. He actually describes it as a guy climbing up a hill... Uh, ready to beat his breast and cry out to God. At the very top of the hill, he points to somebody else and said he did it. That's effectively what really is going on, he claims. And he says, I'm going to read one passage. He says this, the debilitating effect of intellectual dishonesty can be touching. Even when papal authority sincerely wants to perform a virtuous act, when it spends years screwing up its nerve to do it, when it actually thinks it has done it, when it releases a notice of its having done it, when it expects to be congratulated on doing it, it has not done it. Not because it did not want to do it or did not believe it did it. It was simply unable to do it because that would have involved coming clean about the record of the papal institution, and that is all but unthinkable. I am not at all comparing us to that. I don't want to say deal, but is there any comparison?
0: Yeah, absolutely, there's a comparison. Because take the sexual abuse issue. Uh, we who've lived through it know uh, exactly what the Haredi leadership's position was, both as individuals and also organizationally. Uh, and this is changing before our eyes. In fact, in 20 years, you're going to have a good system. They'll probably come out with a statement saying that when the sexual abuse issue first came to the fore, we were at the forefront of trying to stop it and putting in uh, measures. Uh, and we know, we know that's not the case, and we've, we've lived through it, but they will say that. It's very difficult to publicly recognize problematic decisions made by religious leadership. And all religious communities, the Catholic Church is not unique in it, the Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, faith, I guess you can call it, is very similar, is that it, it's easier just to, um, just to change direction without acknowledging that you're in direct opposition to what came before. See this as a sort of uh, development. Uh, now the intellectuals, the writers, they can point out that what we're doing now is very different. And it's not just with the sexual abuse issue, it's cooperating with the Zionists, or you can go down the list of things that the Haredi path changed without making a big deal about it, and instead you have Ada Haredi, major Hartotype screaming, well, what happened to the fact that we're not allowed to sit with the tzayinim, Rechman It might be more intellectually honest to put all our cards on the table and explain exactly what happened. The problem is that many people are unsophisticated, and uh, are not able to recognize that uh, just because earlier figures made mistakes, I'm, I'm not blaming any earlier rabbis who made mistakes on the sexual abuse issue because we didn't really understand it. It was the whole world was making these mistakes, uh, but I don't know if everyone can appreciate that. And if you tell them, for instance, that Rabbi X said that so and so should be allowed to go to a different yeshiva because he promised he's not going to. Get involved in the hanky panky with the kids, then that's okay. Now we see how foolish this is, and uh, and many people would say, "Well, how can this person be a gadol beisrul?" But if you're sophisticated, you will understand that we reckon. If you did it today, the, you'd be right. Anyone who says this today, we couldn't recognize him as a gadol stroll. But everyone has learned and everyone has grown in these areas, and uh, if you're sophisticated, you can recognize that earlier generations didn't really understand what sexual abuse was, didn't understand how um, debilitating and devastating it was, and therefore decisions were made incorrectly in the modern Orthodox world, in the Haredi world, in the Catholic Church, in the Boy Scouts, everyone. So it would be more honest to put our chips on the table, but religious communities, um, you want to keep the, the name of the great figures in the past without sullying their reputations even if you don't mean to, but in the eyes of the masses who are not sophisticated, they can't really appreciate the differences. So, so I, I'm, I'm sympathetic and I understand why to come out with a statement like which documents every single thing done by every rabbi for the last hundred years, uh, that's just, it doesn't really uh, speak to the issues. The information shouldn't be hidden, but uh, I think we have to be careful in how it's written. It has to be written in a historically responsible way. Otherwise, then you're getting to cancel culture. You're saying that just hey, George Washington, throw him out because uh, he had certain views of slavery that today we don't accept. Well, the whole world in those days, that is the whole uh, white white world had certain views about slavery. It doesn't make them all bad people, just that that's what people thought then. And uh, I think you can make the uh, the same analogy. And I know Gary Wall's book, and he has, of course, uh, I understand why he says that. He has an axe to grind with the Catholic Church, but I, I don't know if it's helpful.
1: Interesting. Okay, we're almost done. And I want to ask you now, both as uh, as a historian, but also perhaps even more importantly, as an Orthodox Jew and a rabbi, your take on whether there's any point in talking about this. What I mean by that is that some people have voiced criticisms. And I think they have a point on some level that on a podcast like this, talking about problems in the Haredi world, problems about Das Torah. I mean, no one who actually can make a difference is listening to this anyway. And those people who might be influenced by it probably aren't fully in the, in the Haredi world such that it would uh, really uh, make a major change in their lives in such an important direction. Is there any point in discussing this at all? And if there is, or even if there isn't, what does one do in order to perhaps allow more power to devolve upon the people instead of where it is now, which I think is largely unhealthy?
0: You know, I don't see the, any problems discussing the problems in the Haredi world, after all, if they're not discussing them themselves, then uh, others should discuss it. And many Haredi will listen to your show because they will find insight there. But of course, we also have to say, of course, there's problems in the Haredi world. There's problems in every community, but there's also great strengths in the Haredi world. And, uh, and in the modern Orthodox world, there's loads of problems. In some areas, the modern Orthodox world is better than uh, the Haredi world. In some areas, the Haredi world is superior than the modern Orthodox world. So I think as long as uh, someone like you is fair and not just discuss issues, obviously today with the water situation, that's an issue in the Haredi world, but uh, next week it could be an issue in the modern Orthodox world. There's currently an issue, very similar going on in Yeshiva University right now, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a situation there. So as long as you're covering both sides and as long as you're speaking the good in both communities, as well as pointing out and pointing out the bad, not to jump on them and not to uh, degrade them, but to point out uh, the problem, so uh, to lead to a possible solution, what would make it better? And to say that no one's going to listen to what you're saying, I don't think that's true. I think that uh, plenty of people in the Haredi world, uh, I'm far from the Haredi world, but for instance, my classes, I think most of the people listen in the Haredi world, and uh, many people listen to Haredi shirim or in the non-Haredi world. So if there's truth, people from all groups and all circles will listen to the truth. And uh, it doesn't really matter what uh, who's saying it, if, it's, if the message is good, then... Uh, it should be said. And I think uh, listeners will see whether you or anyone else has an ax to grind or whether uh, you're really interested in uh, dealing with a problem and offering some solutions.
1: Okay, this is so enlightening. Professor Mark Shapiro, thank you very much for your insights. It really was a pleasure having you today.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences